There's a proverb that, um, uh, from memory now, goes something like, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. And uh, it's a lovely idea, that, isn't it? And I don't know if you've ever experienced that feeling when somebody has said something to you that's really stuck with you. Maybe just, maybe in a moment in your life when it was necessary and somebody said the right thing, maybe said the wrong thing. They stick with you too, don't they? But um, uh, my, my memory's full, to be honest, of uh, brethren and sisters throughout my life whose words have really left an imprint. And I often, I kind of rehearse them occasionally because they, they, they said valuable things that uh, I realised in the moment were a real true statement that resonated with me. And I, and I go back to it time and again, like an apple of gold in pictures of silver. And, uh, and, and it's worth thinking about sometimes the way we speak to our brothers, isn't it? Hoping that that's the memory that they have of those statements that are, that are made. And what, what we want to just think about now before lunch is this second um, scene that Paul paints of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about the shout, Lazarus, come forth. Now it's the voice of the archangel. The Lord Jesus will return with the voice of the archangel. And it's one of the more enigmatic ones of the ones Paul chose. What was the voice of the archangel? What was its purpose? What did he say? Why is it that Jesus comes with that voice? And um, it's interesting, wasn't it? Because the archangel doesn't appear many times in scripture. In fact, only three times. He's mentioned by name, if this is the one to whom Paul is referring there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He appears in Daniel's last prophecy, doesn't he? Chapters uh, 10 to 12. In fact, it's worth just turning that one up, actually. You, you might still have some fingers in, uh, in Daniel. Because the funny thing is, this is the first time we meet by name, Michael, the archangel, and... Uh, Particularly in the context of what we're trying to unravel this morning in our session, he never says a word. He's absolutely silent. Right, so he's, he's introduced by the angel that's giving Daniel the vision there in chapter 10. And if you come over to chapter 12, which I think is, is partly where um, the Apostle Paul is quoting from, this is, this is the famous moment, isn't it? At that time, and he's speaking about the last days now, verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who stands for the children of your people, and there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So here is this great standing up of Michael, your prince, says, uh, says the angel to Daniel. And he never says a word. He's just standing there. And the angel goes on to say, look in verse 2. This is what I think the Apostle Paul is quoting there in 1 Thessalonians 4. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. These were the words of Jesus, weren't they, that we looked at earlier in, in John chapter 5. And this is what Paul is rehearsing now, isn't he? That the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and those who sleep in Christ will rise first. And he's referencing Daniel's prophecy here, isn't he, in chapter 12, where Michael stands up and, uh, and many, verse 2, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then Michael, by name, disappears off the scene entirely until Jude wrote his letter. Right? It's the next time we meet him by name. It can't be the next time we meet him in person because... The reference, as you know, that Jude makes is to a later time in, uh, in Zechariah and Ezra. But he's never mentioned by name in Zechariah and Ezra. Jude is the one who tells us it was Michael the archangel. And um, it's only Jude who tells us, I think, in scripture, the words of the archangel. You remember what they were? Do you remember in Jude? It says, Michael, when disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, said... The Lord rebuke thee. And explicitly in scripture, they are the only words we ever hear from the lips of Michael. Explicitly. I'm trying to be really clear here. Explicitly by name, that's the only thing we're told that Michael ever says. The Lord rebuke thee. Apples of gold. In pictures of silver. Jude just kind of wraps up the, the, the events that he's describing that took place in this summary statement that Michael said. And it changed the course of certainly one man's life, definitely two, and probably a generation. And Jude says all that he said was, the Lord rebuke you. And it was done. Right. And the last time we meet Michael is, is, is in Revelation. Maybe finish with that if we have time. So they're the only three times by name we, we meet Michael. Now, it's worth just coming back with me, if you will, to Zechariah chapter 3, just very, very briefly, because you'll remember this, you'll have done this jigsaw puzzling before, I suspect, as to what it was Jude was referring to when he makes the statement that, Jude, that, uh, that Michael spoke uh, in, in its context, the Lord rebuke you. And, um, and he quotes back here to Zechariah chapter 3. Doesn't and I want you to just notice the template now of how Michael is positioned as speaking these words and the impact that it had on those to whom it was said for, spoken for. All right? And here it is in Zechariah chapter 3. And Zechariah says, he showed me, verse 1 of Zechariah 3, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. That, that's, that's the phrase that Jude just picks up and uh, captures there in, uh, in, in his letter. The Lord rebuke you. And now, of course, in Zechariah, you discover Michael actually said a bit more. He went on to say, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem, verse 2, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And... and uh, Zechariah goes on to describe now how he sees Joshua, the priest there, clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he answered and spoke to the, those who stood before him, saying, Take away those filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them put a fair mitre upon his head. And so they put a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Lovely moment, this. Now, 
Here's the next funny thing, and I don't have time to take you through it in detail, but you'll remember the sequence. When you go back and look for this incident when it actually happened in the book of Ezra, Michael, Michael is not there. And again, he says nothing. And what happens here, the way this unfolds is, Zach- as far as I can see it, Zechariah sits down with Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are facing all kinds of opposition to the building work of, of, of the temple as they've arrived back there in Jerusalem. And Joshua is struggling. And he sits down with the prophets, you know, Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi. And I want you to imagine this moment, brothers and sisters. Zechariah sits down alongside Joshua. And he says, Joshua, I want to tell you about a vision I've had. And I saw the opposition that you were facing. And God presented it to me, this, this dramatic scene. And you were standing there in filthy garments. I, and, and we could see all these adversaries who were against you. And God sent Michael. It's funny to just try and work out, isn't it, what the correlation is between Daniel's prophecy and this, these events that unfolded there in, in Ezra and, uh, and in this prophecy of Zechariah. Because... We normally immediately take all those moments as they're described there in Daniel 12 to be the last days or certainly a lot laster than, you know, Ezra chapter four. And yet it's almost as if scripture wants you to see that this generation saw or God wanted that generation to see that there was there was a reality of fulfillment about that prophecy that wasn't just going to be for the last days. It was going to be for this generation too, which is why Zechariah now sits down with Joshua and he says, I saw Michael, the archangel, and he stood up to defend his people. And, uh, and I saw him speak to your adversaries as God's mouthpiece. And he said, the Lord rebuke you. And you carry on reading in Ezra. And who is the one who rebukes the adversaries? It wasn't Michael. It was Joshua. Joshua was strengthened and emboldened to stand up against those who tried to stop him. And he was the one who said, the Lord rebuke you. The words don't come out as blunt as that. He he positions it in a more logical sequence and in a more palatable way. But in effect, Joshua is the one who says, you have no right to build with us. And we will continue building. And of course, as a result, the whole building project gets stopped. And letters are written to the king to go, what, is, what are these people doing? They're, they're rebelling. They're building this temple. It's going to be a disaster for you. And, uh, and they then have to search in the, the, uh, the libraries of Babylon and Akbatana. And they find uh, Cyrus's decree. And eventually, all the thing kicks off again and starts. And it was because of the word of the Lord It wasn't because Joshua did something remarkable other than trust in the fact that the things God said would be a reality became a reality. God had planned that those documents, that that decree of Cyrus, would be registered in every library in the Babylonian Empire years before. God had prophesied 150 years before that after the desolations of Jerusalem, they would return from Babylon and restore and rebuild. All this had been pre-planned and pre-done It was out of Joshua's control. But Joshua wasn't feeling that, was he? He was stood there facing challenge and opposition. And Zachariah sat him down and said, you wait till I tell you the vision I've seen. Michael is standing right beside you. And he's speaking authoritatively. The Lord rebuke you. And Joshua was emboldened to carry on the work and to rebuke himself, his adversaries, 
and to trust that all the plans and preparations that God had already made would not fail. And that's all that Michael did. In the end, I say all. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being cautious now. All that Michael did was stand up and say, listen, this is in good hands, Joshua. There is no question about the reality of this, these events and the, and the work that's already been prepared by God. And the voice of the archangel in the ears of Joshua was just, it will be done. And in fact, if you just look down, if you're still in Zechariah 3, I can't remember where you are now. If you're still in Zechariah 3, Michael keeps speaking. And in fact, uh, he says there, um, verse 6, the angel of the Lord protested to Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my charge, then you will judge my house. And you will keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. And what the angel goes on to say to Joshua is, the stuff that you're doing and involved in Joshua is itself, it's kind of just a prophecy. This temple cannot be stopped in building because the significance and the symbology of what it stands for has to go ahead. And, and uh, the, the angel Michael continues to say, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. I will engrave it with the graving thereof, says the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, you will call every man his neighbour under his vine and under his fig tree. Can you hear what Michael is saying? Joshua, this stuff itself is symbolic. The stuff that you are doing, the role that you have, the temple that you are building is itself just part of a bigger, grander story that cannot be stopped. And it has to be done because the men with whom you are working are themselves prophetically a sign of the one who is still to come. I will bring forth my servant, the branch. And you know now of whom Michael is speaking. And in fact, he goes on to quote from Micah chapter 4 there, doesn't he? In that day, says the Lord of hosts, verse 10, shall you call every man his neighbour under the vine and under the fig tree. And he's referencing Micah 4. Do you remember that great prophecy? In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and people will flow to it. And many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the... House of the Lord, he will teach us of his ways and they will sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And Micah ends that prophecy by saying, because the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. That's how we know it will be a reality. And all that Michael did, again, I'm saying all, you know, as if it was a small thing. All that Michael did was appear to Zechariah in a vision and ask him to remind Joshua of all these things that were already done. They're already sealed. And all Joshua, I say all, all Joshua has to do is realise he's part of a big story here that cannot be stopped. And to play his part. And to hear those words, the Lord rebuke you. This, this is not Joshua's work, this is the Lord's work. And he is there just playing his part. And I wonder, Francis, if there's a couple of other occasions in scripture when this template of how Michael's voice is to be used uh, can be seen. We can move to Joshua chapter 5. Do you remember this occasion when uh, 
Interestingly, it's another Joshua. Um, they've crossed the Jordan. Joshua is new in his role as the commander of God's army, or so he thinks. And he meets an angel. He's not named. Not explicitly, anyway. And uh, it says in verse 13 of Joshua 5, It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked... And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said, Are you for us or for our enemies? And the man answered, No. As captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? Now you'll probably know this description this man gives of his own rank is, I am the captain. And that's the same word that's used there in Daniel chapter 12. Michael, your prince. Same same word there. Uh, the ark bit of the angel. That, that's, that's that word there, captain. And uh, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What says my Lord unto his servant? Joshua immediately recognises now, from his words, this man. And the words of the angel were, Verse 15, loose your shoe from your foot for the place whereon you're standing is holy. Can you remember the last man who was asked to do that? Uh, yeah, sorry, it was a rhetorical question, but thank you. Yeah, it's <laughs> good to know you're there. It was Moses, wasn't it? He was the last man asked to carry out this process. Makes you wonder, doesn't it, whether the man to whom Moses spoke was the same one now to whom Joshua speaks. And he's purposely asked to connect with the experience Moses had been through by removing his shoes. He's standing on holy ground in front of this angel. Now listen to the words now of the angel because it's one of those awkward things where you've got to imagine there's no chapter division here. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, and I put it to you, friends, it's the same angel speaking now. These are the words of the angel to Joshua. This is what I want you to do. I have given into your hand Jericho and its king, and the mighty men of valour, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to compass the city. And do you remember how this city was going to fall? It was going to fall with two key mechanisms, the blowing of trumpets and shouting. That's how this city was going to fall. They were going to encompass the city for seven days, and on the seventh day, on the seventh time round the city, because on the seventh day they were going to go round the city seven times, the priests were going to blow the trumpet, and Joshua said... You wait for my word, and, and when, when I say, you shout. And it was the shout and the trumpet, brothers and sisters, that made that city fall. On the seventh day, on the seventh trumpet sound, the city fell because the people shouted, and God wrought his victory. And it was because of the words, I put it to you, brothers and sisters, of the archangel, who all he did was say to Joshua, I say all, all he did was say, this battle is mine, actually, Joshua, it's not yours. And this is how I want you to achieve it. I want you to blow some trumpets and shout. That's how we're going to be victorious here. The next temple I just want you to see really quickly, brothers, is in Judges chapter 6. You remember this occasion... When Gideon, on this occasion, meets an angel. Again, he's not named. He's not named, but um, 
Uh, he meets him in the, in the middle part there of chapter 6. And I think, Brent, he's the only judge to meet an angel personally. Samson's parents, if you remember, met an angel, but Samson didn't himself. It was before he was born. Gideon was the only one to personally have this regular encounter with this angel throughout his experience. And I want you to notice Gideon's reaction when he realises with whom he's been speaking. In chapter 6, verse 22, when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. Can you think of the only other person, Brentis, who is described as seeing God in this way, face to face? Not rhetorical. Right, Moses. I'm back, back in the vibe with you now. There we are. Moses was described as having spoken to the Lord face to face. And it's almost as if Gideon is referencing that now, isn't he? And he said, alas, I've spoken with the Lord face to face. And uh, the angel calms him down. Now, you might remember how Gideon achieves his victory. The angel asks him to select his army. And it's, it's a lovely picture, actually, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gideon blows the trumpet and he has 3,000 no, 30,000 men come and join him. And the angel said, it's too many. So despite the fact when the trumpet was heard, this great congregation gathered, the angel said, we need to have a process of elimination here because there's too many. And by process of elimination, Gideon, as you know, whittled it down to only 300 men. And on the night before the battle, the angel said to Gideon, I think you need some encouragement here, Gideon. I want you to sneak down into the Midianite camp and just hear the outcome of a dream just before we go and fight this battle. And do you remember how Gideon, crouching down outside the Midianite tent, heard the story of the barley loaf rolling down and flattening the Midianite army? And all the angel did, brothers and sisters, was tell Gideon to go and listen to somebody else's dream. And the battle was done. And do you remember the, the weapons that Gideon chose to go into battle? He chose trumpets and voices. And when they surrounded the host of Midian, Gideon said, when, when I give the word, he said, I want you to break the picture. And I want you to blow the trumpet, which is in the other hand. You have to be quite ambidextrous to be in Gideon's army. Your sword, uh, uh, torch in a picture, breaking one, shouting, blowing a trumpet. I don't know how they did all that. It was almost like holding trumpets for each other somehow. But when the moment came, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they blew the trumpet and the battle was done. And all the angel did, brethren and sisters, was remind Gideon that this battle was not his. All this work was already done. And all he had to do, I say all, was to play his part in this grand flow of the work that God was to do. Well, you might remember, brothers and sisters, the last time Michael appears in Scripture. Which part of Revelation do you think you would expect to meet Michael? It's in the blowing of the trumpets, right? Michael doesn't stand up until the last trumpet is about to sound. Which is why the Apostle Paul said, isn't it? At the last trump, the, the, the dead in Christ will rise. And all these, all these templates now come to the fore. And at the last trumpet sound, Michael stood up in heaven. And who was he rebuking? Can you remember the description given there? 
It says it was that old serpent, the devil. That's who Michael cast out of, out of heaven by his word. And, and it, you kind of got to kind of work out what these metaphors are telling you, brothers and sisters. The, the serpent can only be removed, brothers and sisters, from your life, from Gideon's life, from Joshua's life, from the life of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the word of God. And it can be done. And when the Lord Jesus Christ will descend with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, Stephen alluded to it earlier. There was a, there was a, a statement there in Hebrews 2 where it said God subjected the, the world that was into the hands of the angels, but not the world to come. That's in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's almost like the baton is now being handed on, isn't it? That with the voice of the archangel, Michael has kept everything in place that God needed to be done for all these years. And now, with his voice, he hands over that work to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord descends, and the world to come is now put in subjection into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it be, brothers and sisters, we can hear that voice so often. It's how we finished our first session, isn't it? That voice is clear, and it gets fuzzy, and it gets woolly, and it gets difficult to hear. But if you feel your enemies are too great to be overcome, brothers and sisters, then just hear the, the only thing the archangel is ever described as saying the Lord rebuke you and the final enemy who will hear that rebuke brothers and sisters is that old serpent himself the devil what a wonder brothers and sisters that that voice will come when the Lord Jesus Christ comes with a shout all all these things will, will be brought with him and our enemies too will be destroyed in great pomp and ceremony just like they were for Joshua and for Gideon